0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So I want to invite you, uh, as is our custom, to, to join us in Ezra, in the seventh and eighth chapter, and so if you're maybe new with us this morning, there's a couple ways I want you to participate. Maybe if you've got a, a device, I would invite you to, to open that device, use it to get access to a Bible, or, or even if you, if you don't, there, there's a paperback Bible you'll see in, in the chair in front of you, and we'd love to, or maybe in the chair you're sitting on, and we'd love for you to join us there. Don't be afraid of the table of contents, uh, as, as we want to invite people regularly to open the Bible with us. There's, there's a sense in which, as it teaches us, that there are treasures for us, whether this is is the thousandth time you've opened the Bible, or the very first. I'm so grateful that you're here, and I want you to join along with us. As as one of our kind of old heroes shares uh, with us, and and we, we paraphrase it this way, is that when we open the Bible, the Bible actually begins to open us. And when we begin to expound upon what's in the Bible, the and expose it, or exposit is the word you might hear us use, is, is the, the Bible actually begins to expose that which is in us and, and applies deep grace there. And so I want you to, to join us as as is our custom to to find this good news and be encouraged by it and renewed by it as we're in Ezra. Ezra, As you make your way there, I'll give you a little bit of a rundown. Ezra is in the category of the writings of the Old Testament. And up to this point in the narrative, God's people have rebelled against God, and yet he has not given up on them. They are are freed from the bondage of slavery in Egypt and delivered to a promised land. And yet even when they had everything they had wanted and were God's people distinct in this place, they rebelled against God again. And yet God, in disciplining them through Exile to Babylon doesn't give up on them and invites them to be renewed, to a rebuild, to experience new life as they return from exile back to Jerusalem. And the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and the prophets Haggai and Zechariah and even the story of Esther talk about this period in history in which the Second Temple is rebuilt, another chance, a new leaf, a new and. A new and promising future is offered for people who have been wandering and exiled. Now, Why would we read this story? Why would we reflect on it? Well, there's a few reasons, and I want to remind you for a couple of them. One is simply that as I I see it, as these people returned back to Jerusalem, there was a sense in which, and we saw this last week, that there was no going back to the way that things were. They had returned home, and yet it was vastly different than what they remembered. And I would say for many of us in the last year and a half, we have experienced at least one or a number of things from which we cannot go back. And for the people that Ezra and Nehemiah are are being encouraged uh, by, that, for those people, it was incumbent upon them to look to the Lord to experience new hope and new life when what seemed like a, a cause for sorrow in losing a past that they had beloved had left them in a spot where they didn't know about the future. And I would say that for me personally, if not for you, is a, is a place where Ezra and Nehemiah offer hope for you and for me for renewal, a sense of new hope, a new purpose, even in a situation that may be very unfamiliar to us. But as we'll see, especially from here to the end of Nehemiah, as Ezra and Nehemiah were one unit to begin with when they were, when they were added to, to the canon of Scripture, we also see an example of what godly leadership looks like and how God uses people to love and care for us and to serve us. And in that sense, Ezra and Nehemiah also give us profound examples of what we as a church long to call out among us, that men and women should begin to aspire to living lives like this. That renewal that God brings about through his presence comes through particular means, and Ezra and Nehemiah introduce us to those means. So I'm going to skim through chapter 7 and 8. We're going to skip through some of the lists and letters, um, but we're going to get the heart of it and, and read through it. And as we do, uh, I want to invite you to begin to kind of, if, if, if possible, to as as we're first introduced to Ezra here, to get to know Ezra, and then to consider how God used Ezra to serve and love his people who had been wandering and were now given a chance for a new life. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7, while the first six chapters are really the story of Zerubbabel and the rebuilding of the altar and the rebuilding of the temple, from chapter 7 through 10, the end of Ezra, what we find is a spiritual rebuilding, a spiritual renewal. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7, now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zariah, son of Udzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked. For the hand of the Lord was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is the copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the free will offerings of the peoples and the priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem." And then what follows is Artaxerxes giving Ezra the power to do exactly what he feels called to do. And even with such force to, to enforce and and to in that sense like create the, the obedient culture that he's, he's creating here. So in verse 25, and you Ezra, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river. That's beyond the Jordan. All such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the king of the king, excuse me, and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment, or for confiscation of his goods, or for imprisonment. And now Ezra speaks. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was On me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. These are the heads of the fathers' houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. I will skip the verse fifteen. What follows there is uh, is a lineage and genealogy of twelve of these families that came with him. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jarib, El- Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulah, leading men, and for Joyarib and Elnathan, again, who were men of insight. And sent them to Iddo, the leading man at the place Casiphia, telling them what to say to Iddo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Casiphia, Namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali. The son of Levi, son of Israel, named Sherebiah, with the sons, with excuse me, with his sons and kinsmen, also Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons. Besides or twenty, besides two hundred twenty of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites, these were all mentioned by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all Who forsake him. So we fasted and implored God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then you see a list of all the things and people that he brought along with him. Skip down to verse 31. When we then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem, the hand of our God was on us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth, the priest, son of Uriah. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Jozebad and the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps, and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. May the Lord add blessing and encouragement to the reading of his word today. I began our time in this series with a question, which is the theme of Ezra and Nehemiah. Where do you personally want or need to experience renewal? Where do you want or need to experience renewal? new life where do you currently lack forgiveness where are you currently marked by more bitterness than joy where in your life do you find the most discontentment where in your life do you find yourself to be void of mercy where in your life do you find yourself being the most guarded and insecure where in your life do you do you find your decisions An attitude marked by fear. I ask those questions because the Lord delights to meet you and be present with you to give those things to you. To bring renewal in those areas. Those aren't meant to be a cause for shame. Those are meant to be places where God will display His grace. The first six chapters of Ezra as I shared with you before, more properly, probably called Zerubbabel. should have been three books, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. But Ezra, being a scribe, recorded the history of those first six chapters. In many ways, serve as a prologue to the actual ministry of Ezra, which is chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. They serve as setting of the stage for the spiritual renewal that takes place in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 under Ezra. And so, in the two chapters we read, and I'll point to you. We saw an introduction of Ezra, got to know him, his lineage. We got to hear a, an official letter from the king Artaxerxes to do exactly what Ezra was called to do. Even to the point where we find out that Ezra gets whatever he wants to from the king. That's how he is so blessed by the hand of the God, the hand of the Lord God. On Ezra. And then in the middle there, there's a genealogy, verse 1 through 14 of chapter 8, smack dab in the middle, of 12 families. We'll come back to that. And then we see an introduction to the people that will lead alongside Ezra people, the Levites, who will come and serve the priests and lead these people along with them. And then lastly, we see, after he's kind of set up all of that, introduce his own goal and purpose. What do you see? God's hand is on them, and they safely make it back home. Up to this point, as the, as Cyrus, the king of the Medo-Persians, in chapter 1, verse 1, issues an edict that the people will be invited to return after the Babylonian captivity to their home, some Large chunk of time has passed. We saw last week, if you remember, it, it took almost 20 years, roughly, uh, for the temple to be completed. But then, remember that was under Cyrus, and then even Darius, and then what, it, I don't know if you caught this, where are we now, right? Remember I told you this was kind of a way to think about the the, the time frame more helpfully, we first start with the fall of Babylon to Cyrus the Great, and then the decree in Ezra 1 happens at about 537. Roughly 10 years later, Cambyses takes the throne. Sometimes he's known as, uh, uh, or, or some of these uh, kind of interim kings, maybe Smyrtus even, in 522, stops the building. He's known as Ahasuerus. That's particularly important. That's kind of a, a, a nickname in many ways. may not be an official name, but it's an important name if you've ever read the book of Esther, which takes place in that, in that period of time. And then Darius takes the throne in 520. That's where we saw ourselves last week. And the, the completion of the temple, the building is resumed because of the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. And then count over the time now between the completion of the temple because of the the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah and the endurance of these people through adversity all the way through the reign of Xerxes and then Artaxerxes I in 465 to the point where what we just read takes place in about 458, right? Seventh year, did you hear that? So think of it. A good 60 or so years has passed since the completion of the temple. 60 years. And then Ezra returns to lead people through a spiritual renewal, as we'll see next week through repentance, and this week through an experience of godly leadership and a return to being subject to his very voice and word. So, the course of time here we've covered at this point, right, is, is roughly over a, about 100 years or so when we think about the 100 to 120 years that, that spreads out across Ezra and Nehemiah. And what we find here is, and I think you'll find this, is that like the building of the altar and the building of the temple were simply setting the stage for what God would do in his people. After all, the end goal it would be that God would rebuild his nation, his people. That there would be a distinct people that testified to his goodness in a distinct place, in a distinct way. They start building. Some of them get distracted. You'll see that in the message of Haggai and Zechariah. That's possibly why things weren't completed. But as they finish... It's still 60 years, evidently, of something that takes place that demands Ezra's return. And what we find here, I think, is the renewal that comes through God's word and the renewal that comes through godly leadership. Here's what I think we'll find in these two chapters. God is present with his people. God is present to renew them. He'll be with them and for them. And the way that he does that, the way that he renews his people is by his word and through compelling leaders. These are the means. This is the way that God works. He speaks to his people. They hear. And he offers people to lead, to love, and to care for them every single time. Whether it's from Abraham to Moses, to broken leaders like Gideon, Samson, to broken kings like David, Solomon, Jeroboam, even to imperfect leaders like Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. This is how God works, works through people present to lead and care for his people. If you're not a believer in this room, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I'm I'm really glad you're here, And, and here's what I want to compel you to consider is Christians hold tightly to this conviction because that's what we believe about Christ, We don't worship a God who's up there and out there, who kind of made things and is just letting them run their course. We worship a God for His glory and the good of His people intervenes and gives us people to point us back to Him when we need it. And for us, that's what Jesus is. A powerful message that God works in and through His people. So now what? The temple's finished. And 60 years passed. And evidently, whatever had happened necessitated what we read in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. Something happened over the course of that 60 years that demanded what Ezra was sent to do in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. I think the first thing you can see here is that evidently there was a lifelessness connected to hearing from God through his word. That is, there was evidently something about their neglect of The scripture of, of the holy writing that revealed who God was that necessitated God bringing Ezra onto the scene. And the first chapter I think we see is that God is present to renew his people by his word. Look how we're introduced to Ezra. The hand of the Lord is upon him, but the way that the hand of the Lord is upon him is incredibly impressive. But the way that we're first introduced to him is in verse 6. Ezra, after his lineage, comes from Babylonia, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord. His God was on him. So the hand of God was on him, and not only that he was evidently competent in the way that he explained and expounded upon the Scripture. That is, at this point, the law of Moses, the story of who God was and how he redeems and delivers his people, even though they kick and scream all the way across the wilderness. He delivers them across the wilderness, and even in this case, delivers them out of exile. I shared this with you before, and you'll see this toward the end here. Is this is a second exodus, and Ezra, in that sense, and Nehemiah serve as kind of like a second Moses, so that even here, you see, he refers back to the law of Moses. Evidently, it was something that was ignored, something that had been overlooked. And then we find something compelling about Ezra in verse 10. Look there. For Ezra had set his heart. I love that language, right? Like, I mean, that, that's just a powerful invitation for reflection, isn't it? To ask yourself even now, what is your heart set on? Like, what drives you, motivates you, right? And, and look at what... Ezra has heart, his heart set on to one study, understand, search the law of the Lord. Two, hear this from sounds like the the letter of James, not just to be hearers but doers of the word. To do, to live out what he understood and searched out in the law of the Lord. And three, to teach it, to pass it on to others. And here we have a a, a beautiful blueprint for what it means to be after God's own heart, to have our hearts set on His purpose, that is to actively understand His voice and hear it regularly, and to to hear it in such a way that you live it out, and to live it out in such a way that other people come to know our God. Renewal comes through God's people setting their hearts on His voice, obeying what they hear, And then doing so in such a way that compels others to hear it as well. Remember that question I asked? What place in your life do you want or need to experience renewal? Here's the question I would ask you. Is there anything the Bible has to say about that? Is there anything that the Scripture has to say about that place where you currently feel lifeless, hopeless, discontented, bitter? resentful, unforgiving? Is there there anything that the Scripture has to say? And notice, if your answer is, I don't know, I'm not sure, then understand that will be a barrier for you experiencing new life and new joy in that area. Think of it this way. If the God of the universe had something to say to you right here and right now that would encourage you and give you hope to carry on, to endure difficulty, wouldn't you want to hear it? Wouldn't you want to know it? And so I'll jump to the end. Even if you don't know, I have good news for you. God has a word for you in that place where you experience the least amount of life and joy. And it's a word of hope. And renewal comes when we know that God has something to say to us. The God of the universe actually hears us and responds to us. And He has brought to us His Scripture, his word, is revelation of himself so that we would never again wonder if we're alone or without hope or without purpose. And so Ezra sought to hear God's voice and he sought to see God's voice permeate his own life and even the life of others. So ask yourself, what does God have to say to me? Ask yourself right now, what might God be trying to tell me? What might God be trying to communicate to me? And so that we, are, we will know that we are never alone, never abandoned. We have His Word. We have His Scripture. Now remember what I told you about Ezra and Nehemiah? second temple worship that, be, that began in this particular era is in many ways the foundation for even Christian worship. The rhythms that you and I engage in, as we invite others into the rhythms of of Connection Church, as we gather every single time we get together on a Sunday, we open the scripture, we let it speak to us, we let it remind us because we know how prone we are to look for renewal and hope and new life and lesser in other things. And we're reminded by someone who declares, sings, and even proclaims and compels us to be reminded that God speaks a word to us. And that word is good news. Remember I told you as we were walking through Psalm 119 for six weeks this last summer, that might be the most boring thing we ever do. And yet it will be the most important thing you ever do. To daily, regularly love and listen to the voice of God. And here you go. This might be the most boring thing I will ever say to you. And yet, the most important thing, listen to what God has to say to you in Scripture. Please, please, trust me, do not take my word for it. Do not be content with my words. Find the words of life every day, and here's what you'll find the God of the universe will meet you. This is the only book where we care less about the content and care more about the author. Like, hear me clearly. I don't want Connection Church to be a group of people who who know and memorize this word so that they can win arguments at cocktail parties. I want Connection Church to be the people who know the author of this book and the words we find in Christ of our very God, are written not on just paper, but the promises they'll be written on our own hearts. And let me just at least introduce you to the possibility in Ezra chapter 7 that you will not experience hope, life, or joy in those areas where you currently are missing those things if you don't. It's my job every single week even, someone's job, just stand up here, open the text, and then as best we can, point us to words of hype. Well, words of hype, that too. I, I think I think there's some hype in this. You ought to be hyped after this. Words of life. Words that as, as the, I, I love it, like when the world kind of turned on the apostles and Jesus started speaking hard words, like, man, if you don't love me, like if you love me, you're going to drink my blood. And people just started leaving. And the apostles were like, Man, this is a hard teaching. And and Jesus even said, do you want to leave too? And what what was their conclusion? To whom else would we go? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. Friend, these are the words that give us life and give us hope. And if we're going to experience renewal personally, or even as a church, in a new era that's before us, it will be because we regularly hear from God himself. Hear the good news in this, right? This is a place where the enemy wants to cause a lot of shame, right? This is where, it, you know, and, and this is where even I think pastors can, and leaders can do a bad job of this, and this is where I can just shame you, like you haven't, and, and again, if you're not a believer, this, you're, you're immune to this, you're, you're lucky in this one, but if you have baggage from the church, like this is where you can go like, you haven't been reading your Bible, have you? You know you're not reading your Bible enough, Right? And that's, and that's unhelpful, that's, a, that's the work of the enemy. Because after all, I've never met anyone who at the end of the day goes like, you know what I did way too much of today? I read way too much of the Bible today. Man, just like, totally, just like spent, I, I just sat there listening to God all day, way too much. Right, so, so don't let this, don't hear this as a, a, as a shame and condemnation of something you're not doing. Hear this as good news, a word from God himself that you're missing. But the God of the universe has hope and encouragement for you. Think of it as a notification you have on your phone that comes every day from the creator of the universe. Wouldn't you want to check that? But look at what he does. Look how Ezra leads through renewal. I think we get some beautiful pictures of what, what a godly leader compelled by God's word is able to do. It says there in verse 14 that he made inquiry. You're sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. So do you remember what I told you? It's, a, it's like a, a quote of Charles Spurgeon that we open the Bible, but it actually opens us. Did you hear that? Notice that, that what Ezra does there, he, he doesn't just say, hey, you guys should open, you should open the Bible, listen to God, and then ask him questions. That isn't how that works. Instead, we open the Bible, we hear the Scripture, and it asks us questions. It inquires of us. Maybe think of it this way. His word that brings renewal probes into the depths of our souls. So let me ask it this way. Who have you given the right to make inquiry into all of your life? Think of it this way. We talk about this in church membership. Covenant membership is that we relinquish the right to ever say none of your business ever again. And I don't know for many, that's a terrifying thing. But I think it's terrifying just because you haven't experienced God's word when it, when it dips deep into your soul. That, that thing that you want to keep a secret more than anything else is the place where God wants to bring the most grace and the most healing and the most hope. That thing you're terrified of, everyone finding out about you, that you don't want to say and you're hoping I don't mention, that thing is the place where you're lacking joy, you're lacking trust, and God wants to give you more hope and more safety there than you can imagine. So I'll ask it again, who have you given the right to make inquiry into all of your life? It starts with Jesus. It starts with the God of the universe to say, God, you, I mean, this, is, this is the irony of it, right, like, as though, as though God doesn't already know. The omniscient God already knows what you wish he didn't. He already knows. Not shocked by it. But then when that settles into you deeply, you actually welcome the Scripture to come give you more and more grace, to give you more and more joy. And I trust that because I see what the Word does in people. I trust that the Lord has put around you people, that you can trust with this. You can trust them to make inquiry in light of God's Word. And maybe for some of you, that was wielded hurtfully in the past. I hope hope you'll find the grace to forgive whoever did that, but I, I want you to know the Lord means to give you hope and joy in the place where you currently feel the most hurt. He's a forgiver. He's also a healer. And just like the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, he restores and rebuilds what's been torn down and broken. And the way that he does it, you see here, is that his word makes inquiry. Maybe think of it this way, what questions is God asking of you right now? (laughs) Again, they're rhetorical questions, he already knows the answer. But might even now you begin to relinquish control and hold on those things, And experience the grace that comes when we hear God speak an intimate word. There's, there's There's just nothing better than that. And the place right now where you're working as hard as you can to win people's approval, to hear the voice of the Lord speak deep into your soul, you're mine. I receive you. And for many of you who walk around with guilt and shame, to hear the voice of the Lord to the depths of your soul say, I've done everything that's necessary. You're perfect and spotless before me. Might we let the gospel make inquiries on us so that, in this sense, the hand of God would be on us as well. We're renewed by his presence as as God speaks to us in this. Here's what I think we see as it kind of moves into the next chapter is that God's word then is wielded by compelling leaders. God is present to renew his people by his word and through compelling leaders. So you see, we saw that kind of his word in the first first chapter we looked at, chapter 7. The second chapter is God is present to renew his people through compelling leaders. Where do I get that? Well, first and foremost, the central theme, remember, you know, if you're an Old Testament nerd here, you're going to love this, there's a chiastic structure to chapter 7 and 8. Remember, in Western society or Western culture, most of the time in, in literature, the, the climax is at the end of the story, um, whereas in, in Hebrew or Eastern literature, the climax is in the middle. And so this is especially important. If, if you think genealogies are the most boring parts of the entire Bible, it was, I mean, it was rough to read all those out in front of you. I took Hebrew for a couple years, and I still, I, mean, whew, I, I would love to have some of those back. I would love to try that again. But the central focus of this passage is the genealogy in chapter 1 through 14. Why is that? Well, there's a few reasons. One, there are 12 families. Remember how I told you that we're, we're, we're meant intentionally by Ezra and Nehemiah to be invited to recall the Exodus? As if to say these 12 families represent the whole of God's people. That God isn't going to leave anyone out. God's going to bring his people through, and he's not going to miss a single one. He is not going to forget his people. Those who are his remain his. That's it, period. And that's, again, in boring fashion in some ways, right? The climax of of this passage, a list of people you've never heard of and yet are not forgotten by God. And I love how God uses Ezra in this to draw our attention. A scribe, After all, he's a scribe, right? He's an accountant. He pays attention to details. Lots of lists. He and Nehemiah as well. But notice at the center of this passage is a list, as if to say the stuff you would like to skim over is the stuff that God loves. The list of people who are anonymous and unknown, those are the people God loves. He won't abandon them. Make no mistake about it, there's a, there's a sense of importance that's built into every culture, what is exalted and what, it, what is honored. And, and the enemy would love to use that sense of importance based on like people who have the most influence. I mean, just like if you're the most influential, or if you're like the, you know, most famous, most accomplished, right? You know, most impactful, most powerful, smartest, best looking, like all these They kind of they have they give us a sense of value. And notice that in this this particular passage, that's upended. And you and I are meant to, by by Ezra's invitation, to think of ourselves on a list that means nothing to no one but God. Maybe you're not famous. Maybe you're not well-known. Maybe you're not particularly successful. Maybe you're kind of a loser. Guess what? You meet the criteria to receive God's grace and love. You're exactly whom he loves to give and pour out his grace upon. In fact, it's the self-important, the self-righteous, the self-justifiers. Those are the ones, the proud, that God rejects. So I just pointed out as, as we skimmed over it even then, think of it as like your name is on that list because of Christ. Now in Christ, we belong to God, and, and therefore, in that sense, we are remembered. We're on a list that matters. And Ezra helps lead them to see that. Ezra's job is to call out those, hey, come with me, you come with me, you come with me. But then he realizes, in verse 15, as he gathered them together, and they were camped three days, he reviewed the people and the priests, right? He's a good, This sounds like a good scribe. I'm like, wait, let's take account. Nope. And he, and he sees that there's no Levites. So you got to go back for a second before you understand the, the cool part of this passage. He then recruits Levites, to, the, the, the Levitical people, the Levites, to come with him, to safely return to Jerusalem. But when he looks around, he's like, we don't have the leaders we need. We don't have the people that will serve in this act of renewal that God's going to bring about. Levites kind of date back through, uh, through, the, through, the, through the Exodus. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 10, this is the best summary of it. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to do what? To carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, And to bless in his name to this day. You get this picture that's like this is what they will be doing. Therefore, now this is interesting, you would think, oh, they're probably pretty wealthy, well-to-do people. Nope. Therefore, Levi has what? No portion. No inheritance with his brothers. Why? The Lord is his inheritance. As the Lord your God has said to him. So, there was this group of people set aside that even in the promised land, everyone had places they could settle, except the Levites. The Levites were the homeless people that constantly reminded the people of Israel what it meant to be claimed by and protected and provided for by God. That God will be enough. God will be your portion. God will be your inheritance. Now, we don't know why the Levites weren't there. I think that kind of points to it, right? They were like, Why would I want to go back? I mean, why would I want to go back to a place that I don't really have a home, right? Like why? And and in that sense, maybe they didn't trust that God really would provide for them. And maybe they just knew the people, and they were like, I don't think these people are actually going to care for me, right? Because it was the tithes of the people that sustained the ministry of the ark and the tabernacle and the temple and the ministry of the Levites. And evidently, Ezra thinks, without these people to lead and serve us in this way, we won't be all that God means for us to be. Just as in the first Exodus, you even see in Numbers chapter 16, right, there's a a big mess up with the Levites, the rebellion of Korah is what it's called, Korah, they rebel against the Levites, it's a really bad deal. So also evidently in the second Moses, the second Exodus, the second Moses, Ezra has to deal with some problems with the Levites as well, namely they're gone. But notice what Ezra does, and I think there's a powerful lesson for us in this, he calls them out. He seeks them out to the point where it says that he gets as many as he needs, and then another 220 temple servants to help them. God brings renewal through compelling leadership. There was something compelling about the way that Ezra recruited those people, and here's what I would tell you, that is the picture of the Christian life. We don't know why they weren't there. But Ezra, knowing God's word, knew that they needed to be there. They needed to recruit people who would lead, and in this case, who would take responsibility for what mattered the most. Now, we saw there in Deuteronomy chapter 10, we don't even, you never hear of the Ark of the Covenant again. That's probably one of the things that was saddest about Second Temple, the Second Temple. Is they didn't have the Ark. It was probably destroyed, obliterated in the, in the exile. But there was a sense in which that they needed people who would serve and lead them, namely the Levites. And they knew if they didn't have them, people who would take responsibility for others, who would take responsibility for the spiritual well-being of others, they weren't going to experience renewal and rebuilding of God's people. On one hand, I think Ezra points out something pretty profound here. He goes and finds them and seeks them out. I believe that's what, Connection Church, hear me clearly. It It is not loving to let Christians wander, right? It's, it's not loving to let them, rem, think metaphorically or literally here, like it is not, it's not loving to let them remain in exile. And Ezra, in, a, in an act of love, goes and seeks them and says, hey, come with us. God's doing something. I want you to be a part of it. And in that sense, that's what, that's what, that's what Christians are. We don't leave people. We call them to more. So let me speak specifically. Some of you in this room right now, you're healing, right? Uh, I know many of you are, I I, I don't ever want to overlook this. You'll never hear me skeptical of this. I know how broken the church can be, Uh, but many of you are healing from hurt that came from the church, disappointment, disillusionment that happened in the church. And hopefully you'll never get from me like, well, you shouldn't. No, she's a mess, right? The church is a mess, but so are you. And Jesus died for messes like you and the church. And so here's what I'll tell you. Like some of you are healing. I love that, I man. I, I want Connection Church to be a people that, that comes around you to heal through this. But we love you. And so a day's coming where we're going to call you to action. It'd be unloving not to. And it's loving to say, come out. Come out to renewal. Come out to the new thing God has for us. Praise God that He's going to be present with you in that healing. But he has made you a kingdom of priests, a priest holy to our God. Stop blending in in Babylon, right? Lead others to know the God that you know. Or, if you aren't currently compelled to lead others to know the God that you know, start having deep questions about whether you really know that God at all. Our God is too great for us to keep a secret about him. And of course of a seven day period, two hundred and sixty people leave everything they know to respond to God's call. Ezra was quite a recruiter, wasn't he? <laughs> right? I mean that's that is a gifted brother, And yet, on the other hand, maybe not. Maybe it really was just the hand of God upon him. Notice the six times that we heard that phrase, the hand of God." The first three the first three it says... It, it, it describes that in a singular. The hand of a God was upon him, Ezra, singular. But the last three, did you catch those? The hand of, a God, the hand of God was upon them. Boy, that can't be a better picture of godly leadership, can there? Of a person who experiences the hand of God in such a way that other people experience it too? Renewal, my friend, is contagious. New life is contagious, and Ezra ministered, apparently, God's word in such a way that people experienced renewal in a contagious way, that people who were willing to leave exile behind to go back and serve. But notice, the point was never that a particular king and a particular building or palace or temple would be the end result. The point is that there would be a people who experience God's presence and to live under his reign. And this time of exile and renewal showed exactly what the heart of God was like, to take wandering, uncertain, scattered people and give them a new home. When his hand's upon us, it gives us love for his word, and it gives us a compulsion to invite others into it. Let me wrap up thinking this way that God was working through some of the most just unlikely means. And one of them is Artaxerxes. Did you catch that? Medo-Persian. Now, remember, I told you about this about Cyrus. People are like, oh, Cyrus must have been a faithful believer in so much of Artaxerxes. Could you hear him say things about that, right? Maybe he was, but certainly not. Because we also see elsewhere where uh, his goal was, hey, I'll just send all these religious people back home, and then they'll pray to their gods to bless me. And so he wasn't faithful. He was just covering all his bets. He was a really good pagan. He's like, hey, well, might as well send them to pray for this and this to pray for this, and maybe it, it can't hurt, right? And so Artaxerxes ends up being the means, did you, in the list, you, you, I encourage you to read it this week, he begins, he begins to be the means of renewal. He, he even, he even like writes a blank check. Did you hear that? He's like, whatever you need, I'll pay for it. Boy, that is a mighty act of God. And God uses some just strange things. God orchestrates these things that would have, would have in many ways seemed opposed to him, and he used it to bring renewal amongst his people. Things that seem like the enemy of God's work, God used as puppets in his play. Octavius Winslow says it this way, So completely was Jesus bent on saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself that he created the tree upon which he was to die. I love that. Like, you can Go back to Genesis and it's like, let there be. And it's like, I'm going to make a tree. I'm going to put it in the middle of the garden so that you're thinking about trees. But you won't understand trees until the time comes. And he nurtured from infancy the very men who were to nail him to the accursed wood. Friend, the experience of renewal in chapter 7 and 8 is that God worked through some unlikely circumstances, orchestrated all of them to give them new hope, new life, and a new future. And there is no greater example of that than when we see Jesus willingly submitting to the will of the Father to wicked men and a cursed tree to take all of what would seem like Opposition to God to bring about the salvation of his people. That's just what God does. God uses the unlikely things. It seems like they have failed. And yet God was using them for good. God was bringing his people back home through the most unlikely of means. I want to invite you to consider that your life is no different. I know you probably aren't where you wish you could be. I know you probably envisioned something for your life that is not what you are currently experiencing. Do you know how I know that? Again, it's the entire story of this book. And would it encourage you to know that what seems uncertain and discombobulating for you is the oldest story God's people have been reciting? That we wander, that we feel lost, we feel homeless, we feel like we don't belong. And yet that is the very means by which God gives us a new home, a new life, and a new joy. That he takes an old rugged cross and uses it as an instrument for life and hope. I say homecoming, but in some sense these people never even knew Jerusalem was their home, right? So much time has passed, most of these people had never even seen Jerusalem. And so for many, that when I say that God preserves his people through exile and brings them home, it's never crossed, in this case for Ezra, it's never crossed their mind that they didn't belong in Jerusalem. And so for you even, if I say that God preserves you through wandering and exile to bring you home, many of you didn't even think that you were homeless. Many of you didn't even know you don't belong here. But just ask yourself... Even if you're not a Christian, why are things so broken here? Why is this life marked by so much suffering? Is it it possible that that's because we don't belong here? (laughs) We were created to be satisfied and renewed in another world, in another existence. Have you ever felt the pain of tragedy, of crisis, of injustice, of unfairness? then friend, you know what it means to long for something else. And they started as outcasts, wandering and exiled in a foreign land, and they end up worshiping God in their homeland, protected, preserved. Did you catch that? All the way home, clear from ambush and everything. All the way home, preserved by God's hand the whole way. They were wanderers, exiles. And God reached down, did you hear the language? And with his hand upon them, anointed Ezra, and led them out of exile all the way back home. You and I, because of our sin, are outcasts, wanderers, exiles, dead in our sin, lost and hopeless. And yet God didn't just reach down. He stepped down in the person and work of his own son, his anointed one, the true and the better Ezra, He stepped into our sin. He took on our death. He went into the grave. And then he led us out in resurrection on the third day. And he will, just like Ezra points to, lead you and me all the way home. Let me encourage you. God used strange means to restore right sacrifice and worship in this passage. Artaxerxes, right? Strange means. That's why I think that quote is so encouraging. Jesus used strange means, a cursed tree, rebellious sinners. And yet who provided all that was needed for the sacrifice? Did you hear it? Artaxerxes handed over the lambs for them to sacrifice. Can you hear Herod handing over the lamb to be sacrificed on our behalf? Here's what this means for you and for me. Romans 10 says it this way. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Do you hear it? Do you hear the ministry of Ezra that you and I have been invited to by Christ? to be a herald of good news that seems absurd such that we are beautified by it, right? I've been told by a person I won't name that I have ugly feet. (laughs) Not my fault that I have finger toes, all right? (laughs) Joke's on you. When I tell people about Jesus, my feet, beautiful, beautiful. Think about that. We are beautified. We are beautified when we point to the name that is above every name. We are beautified when we point to the land across the river that is our home. We are beautified when we long for and are satisfied by God alone. We are beautified when in exile we turn our hearts and lives toward him. We are beautified when we experience his presence all along the way. Do you feel ugly? Do you feel homeless and cast out? Friend, you are welcomed in Jesus. You are made right and even beautiful in Jesus. Let's thank him for that. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it restores us, that it makes us new, that your word that called all that is in existence into being, that made the heavens and the earth, all the living creatures, Your word that called new life out of death and things out of nothingness is the same word that's now being proclaimed to us in Christ. Jesus, the word made flesh, is our compelling leader. He is the one we now follow. He is the one who knows the way home and gives us hope. He is the one who has promised to never leave us or forsake us. God, if there's some in this room that are maybe hopeless and feel as though they're wandering, might you encourage them this morning to know that their their name is in a genealogy that will never be erased. You won't skip or miss a single one. You'll carry them all the way through. Give them endurance and perseverance. Maybe if there's some of us who maybe in this room who had never even believed this good news, the thought that God would love and care for us seems absurd. Might now you even begin to spark their curiosity enliven their imagination. Might they consider that there is a greater hope than what we can find in this earth. There is a home beyond what we can experience in this life, and it has been made available for us by Christ. Might we look to him even today. Might the sinner return to you. Might the wanderer find comfort in you. God, renew us. Give us new life in the places where we're the most lifeless. Let us behold Jesus. Let us see the joy that comes from knowing that he can turn even the most wretched of things and cursed of things into an instrument of glory and hope. Do that in our hearts, Lord. Do that in our families and our neighborhoods and in our church. Do this in the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.